When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What has the buyout culture done to college football, and how closely are we to having college football players employed by the universities they play for? Let's go. It's the number one college football show. What's up, kid folk? Welcome to the number one college football show. I am your host, RJ Young. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, I want to get into the buyout culture and what it says about college football and where it means that we are headed when we're talking about what head coaches will or will not do with this kind of loot. But before we start talking about the coaches, let's talk about the players or what I like to refer to as the labor. Now, it's going to be a little bit of a wonky episode, but I've been wanting to do something like this for some time because these are the decisions that really come to power the sport and help us better understand why some games tend to matter a little bit more than others and why some universities are always going to get better players. Now, the first topic that I got here is the future college football and why I think it's going to lead to employing the air quote student athlete in air quote, right? Because Quite frankly, the NCAA is getting its ass beat in court. Like that's just that's just what it is. They they keep trying to fight these different ways in which they want an antitrust exemption. They want Congress or states to come in and try to help them regulate name, image, and likeness. They even wanted to, you know, keep their transfer rule, but that's not what's happening here. The transfer rule in particular is getting zero traction from anybody. It's getting no help from anybody in Congress in Washington to regulate that alongside NIL, but I think it's important to understand how we got here, right? So it used to be the transfer rule was if you transferred within the FBS, football bowl subdivision, then you have to sit out a year, right? And everybody thought that was fair. And that was still true until we got to see what Russell Wilson did, really transferring from North Carolina State to Wisconsin as a grad transfer. And everybody's okay with that, right? If you graduated, you went to the university to get a diploma, do whatever you want. And that's what he did. He went to Wisconsin. He had a really great time and turned out to be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Then we got to see more grad transfers taking advantage of that. And that's one of the things that I really like that we don't talk about with unforeseen outcomes in trying to speed up how guys get to transfer. I got kiddos that are graduating in three years, right? I got kiddos that are going to school around the clock. I got a, a friend. Well, I say a friend. I have one of the children, one of the kiddos that I mentor, graduated from Notre Dame. He went into the transfer portal as a grad transfer after three years. That's what you want. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's exactly it. Now I got coaches that are really trying to put a cap on how many hours that a kid can take during the summer because they want to be sure that they're going to keep them on campus for longer. And I'm going, you can't have it both ways. You can't tell me that you want them to graduate and that you don't want them to transfer. You know, like if they do what they're supposed to do at school, I think you should be able to do that. Now. The waiver process made this, I think, where we are now. The waiver process, especially when we're talking about high-profile players, 
really started to make no sense. So we first saw this with Justin Fields trying to transfer from Georgia to Ohio State to play right away, right? We got to know the waiver process pretty incredibly because Tom Marsh did such a good job of advocating for not just guys like him, but guys like uh, we're looking at Shea Patterson, right, at Michigan, transferred from Ole Miss. It became, okay, demonstrate a hardship. Well, what's a hardship, right? And that changes for whomever. And sometimes it doesn't always go the way that we think it should from a societal standpoint. Like if you're transferring closer to home because you got family that is sick and, and needs care, that's a great reason. We would see the NCAA kind of look at some of the details of these things and decide, no, that's not a great reason. And then came what we kind of know of now, the invention of the transfer portal, where you could, along with the red shirt rule, you know, play four games, take your red shirt, go into the transfer portal, come out wherever it is you wanted to, and along with immediate eligibility. So immediate eligibility is where a lot of coaches and a lot of administrators are really pulling their hair out because it meant that if you didn't like where you were, not only could you transfer, you could transfer without having to sit out and that made it really difficult to police this, right? There were no consequences for a player that wanted to transfer. You had to really give it some thought. Were you willing to not just sit out the year, but were you willing to get yourself academically ready to transfer to your new program, right? And many of y'all that have gone to college and transferred schools understand that credits don't always transfer the way that you think they're going to transfer. So you had to give that a lot more thought. Now, not so much, right? We try to build in legislation that says, hey, you got to have this much of your roster graduating or you have to have these guys that are coming in on track to graduate at a certain time. And as we continue to try to do that, we also get, you know, alumni want to see their teams win football games. And one of the easiest ways to help their team win football games is to get good players in. Okay, let's make the ease of transfer and recruiting that much simpler. NCAA is going, hey, you're making it really difficult for us to police this and do our jobs, to which everybody's going, well, that's because we don't want you to do it. So now you've got the NCAA, who is not only trying to fight its own transfer rule, right, but it is also trying to fight name, image, and likeness. And that is really where this starts to get, I think, under people's skin. So an example of this is Nick Saban decides to retire, which is you know a job that everybody thought or a task that everybody wanted him to be able to do, right? If you want to retire, great. But one of the unintended consequences of that is the 30-day transfer window for players that were at Alabama, which means that they could enter the transfer portal for 30 days at a time when nobody else could because the transfer portal window is closed for everybody who isn't a grad transfer or hasn't had their head coach either step down, get fired, change jobs. Okay, Then name, image, and likeness and these collectives have come along with ways to incentivize you transferring to said university because perhaps get a little money on the side, right? And that little money became a lot of money. Like the NCAA is even investigating Florida and how its collective was operating when Jaden Rashada was supposed to be going there for what was going to be a King's ransom, right? And then you look around and you see Lane Kiffin is tweeting these erroneous links saying that Ohio State, for instance, is paying $13 million in name, image, and likeness to players that are coming out of the transfer portal. We don't have any visibility on this, right? That's the real issue. We don't get to see who's paying what, what they're getting paid to do. We only know that for the sake of argument, I'm going to I'm gonna pick on Caleb Downs. Caleb Downs entered the transfer portal because Nick Saban's no longer his head coach, came out of Ohio State. 
How did he come out of Ohio State? Ohio State recruited him. Okay, what went into Ohio State's recruiting him? Outstanding academics. Great football team. Yeah, see, that ain't passing muster with you alone, right? And that's okay, right? That's okay. That, that is a honest feeling. But Ohio State and Caleb Downs are not incentivized to tell you what the hell it is that they talked about or why, you know? And I think we're never going to see legislation that allows for such a thing unless we actually start to operate above board when we're talking about employing athletes to play for these universities. And this is why I think name, image, and likeness is not necessarily going to go by the wayside, but it's become it's going to become a back burner conversation if you're paying attention. So the Justice Department is already involved in the transfer portal rule, right? Which means that I think you're going to see more players just go into the transfer portal expecting to come out because now that they know the Justice Department is taping its gloves and ringing the bell, joining lawsuits saying, hey, look, the quote here, and, and by the way, them joining this lawsuit was an illegal restraint on college athletes' ability to sell their name, image, and likeness and control their education. I never thought that we would come to believe the NCAA was the bad guy. I always thought that the NCAA was the maid service, right? It is employed by the member institutions to basically enforce the rules. But it turns out we don't seem to want the NCAA to do much of anything anymore, including the Justice Department, right? And you're not going to get an antitrust exemption the way that we might have had to allow them to operate the way they want to, which is under the guise of amateurism. So to kind of try to bottle this up for you so that you can understand it, the NCAA is hoping it receives that antitrust exemption from somebody, but legal experts mostly contend that's like waiting on a blizzard in the Sahara, in the Sahara which is – not something you want to live through because it means the climate around you is trying to kill you, okay? If it's called in the Sahara, that's bad for all of us. That's the thought here. So what is the possible solution here? Well, as the NCAA is fighting on all sides, there's one case that I think you should be paying attention to more than any other, and that's Johnson versus NCAA. It's a federal lawsuit that argues that athletes are employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act and should be compensated with hourly wages for their work, which also means that they would be employees. And because they're employees, they could collectively bargain and have a union and negotiate compensation with, you know, benefits on behalf of the university. So if this sounds a lot like to you what the NFL is, that's because it is. Right? It would be NFL and its owners and the NFL Players Association and a collective bargain agreement to share revenue from these prodigious television contracts. Some of that money gets paid out to players. Some of that money gets paid out to staff and on it goes. Even Jim Harbaugh has come out and said, Hey, it's time for us to share. Like it, we can't keep doing this because the money's getting too big and players are smart and players. Families are smart. They're going to do whatever they can to maximize their earning potential in a sport that takes years off your life. Full stop. It is dangerous to play football. It's always been dangerous to play football. It will never not be dangerous to play football. So you are incentivized to make as much money as you can in a very short amount of time because football careers are very short and getting shorter because we are no longer going to put up with watching our sons, brothers, fathers take these sorts of injuries. We just don't want to see it anymore. Like uh, the hits of my youth, nobody's going to see them anymore. I remember Steve Atwater putting his helmet into people's chest. You can't do that no more, right? I think as you're paying attention to that case, and how that works its way through the courts, you could come around to understanding how, yeah, all right, a football player 
would have a job that's akin to like the work study job you had, right? If you were working as an RA, to, to use one that everybody understands, where you get a little bit of tuition reimbursement, you also get a little bit of a salary to go to school. Well, for football players, probably gonna be a little bit more than that, right? Might have an annual that they get paid, they pay taxes on it like everybody else, they fill out W-9s, W-2s, what have you, depending on what their compensation is. But I think that is a solution that we can look forward to. That also means, you know, revenue sharing, ACBA, a CFBPA with teeth, and that's where it's gonna get really nasty, and I think not even nasty in terms of ugly, nasty in terms of how are we going to continue to keep our hands around this? Because the thing about college football is that it is transient, right? Our teams are made up of coaches, and then our coaches make those players because we think about Nick Saban, right? We don't think about Jalen Milrow. We think about the thing that is not moving. We think about Urban Meyer. We don't think about Zeke Elliott. You know what I'm saying? We think about the coaches and what they are able to do for these programs because it's only four years of eligibility. Now, that even might get challenged, by the way, of how much eligibility you can get as we're getting guys that are playing for seven years and nine years in some particular instances in the sport. And you got people that feel some kind of way about that. But if you are the person that wants to go back to amateurism, you probably need to find a different sport. We're never going to do that again. That's not going to happen. There's too much money around. There's too many people with their hands out. And college football is too popular. It just is, right? And if you are interested in trying to figure out where the sport is going, take a look at what the NFL has been able to do and understand that that's the model, right? I think there will be some things that you could contend would need to change, right? Given what universities are capable of and what they're not, specifically which universities are capable of paying out, which universities are not. But outside of that, perhaps you're looking at maybe 40, 45 schools that choose to break away. Right. And now I'm getting kind of ahead of myself, which is what a lot of people do. But you should know that we are going to get closer and closer every day to seeing college football players classified as university employees, if for no other reason but to stop these sorts of lawsuits and to make everybody feel good about what the laws are meant to do and codify yet another group of rules that everybody feels are fair in an ever changing environment. All right. So I want to go from that particular mess, which quite frankly, up for. I would love to continue to talk about this. I understand it's kind of wonky too. Another mess, but one that I think is easier to resolve and one is much easier to understand. That is the buyout culture in college football. Okay, so buyout culture. What is that? It is the idea that you are willing to fire a man and pay him what you owe him to not work just so you can go hire another man to pay him more money to start over again. Okay. As long as there are people that are willing to pay to fire somebody, people are going to get fired. People are going to get paid to get fired. As a matter of fact, I kind of look at what I think is the poster child for firing people and paying them in Ross Bjork and what he had to say. He paid out $77 million to Jimbo Fisher because he thought the program was stuck in neutral. Not that the program was bad. Not the program was sorry. But that Texas A&M was stuck in neutral. All right? And he did that because he said, look, if you have the right person and you believe in them and you have the means, you're going to have a contract that speaks to that. So at the time when he extended Jimbo Fisher and gave him this gargantuan contract, I don't know that he was really thinking that he was going to be paying it out. But that's exactly what happened. Now, take back to 2007 when we really got to see this start to ramp up with Nick Saban leaving Miami, the Dolphins, be the head coach of Alabama. He's making $32 million over eight years, which is 
at the time, an enormous amount of money, especially for a coach that wasn't particularly good at Miami and hadn't won an ass championship since 2003. Now, he'd done it at LSU, which hadn't won an ass championship since 1958. So you're already thinking the dude is a miracle worker. Okay, turned out to be true. However, take a look at what's happened since 2007. We, two, de- two decades later, we have 50 Division I coaches who are making salaries of $4 million or more. And then I got this number from The Athletic in as far as who's getting paid what. We have roughly a dozen coaches that are making about $10 million or more. Okay. We have Nick Saban, who at his height was making $11.4 million. And he'd won six national championships. And everybody understands why that's the highest paid coach in America. But then we kind of get into what I think are some wonky contracts, right? So you get Brian Kelly with 10 years, $95 million to go from Notre Dame to LSU. We had a James Franklin who was openly flirting with SC before Riley got that job, who also got a ridiculously high raise. And by ridiculous, I mean by our standards, not that he's not worth it. 10-year contract extension worth $70 million in guaranteed money. Brent Venables, head coach at my favorite uh, university, Oklahoma, six years, $43.5 million, fully guaranteed. Josh Hypo goes from making $5 million annually to $9 million annually because they won 11 games at, well, at Tennessee, but when just to win in 11 games is also that they beat Alabama for the first time in like, you know, 16 years. That meant a lot to them. They're going to overpay for that. Same thing with Oregon and Dan Lanning, what he's been able to do, going from $4.7 million annually to $8.2 annually by the end of 2023. You're paying all that money because you can. That's it. That's the start, right? Think about that. If you have that money to pay, you do. Okay. That also means that there is no shortage of alumni that are willing to help you foot the bill to fire that man. And I don't think you're going to stop that. I think as long as rich people have money that they continue to blow on things like firing head coaches, they will. I know this to be true because it's been true ever since we started playing college football. We will pay for players. We will pay for coaches. We will pay to feel as if we are part of the program. And sometimes the only way you can feel part of the program is by firing somebody. Okay, my favorite booster story ever is Joe Jamil, who's got not one but two statues down in the University of Texas. King of Torts was Mac Brown's agent when he was at Texas. He had the field at Texas named after him, Joe Jamil Field. Okay, when they lost to UCLA, he said, how much money to take my name off the field? Rich people be acting like this. Rich people be working like this. Right. But also can't trust these coaches to just take the money. You know, like we're talking about 77 million being paid out to Jimbo Fisher, 21 million being paid out to Gus Malzahn at one point in time, or the $40 million plus that Matt Rule is getting to be fired as Carolina Panthers head coach. They want to coach football. So they're going to find a way to coach football, and you're going to still pay them to coach somewhere else? Feels wild. But it also kind of underscores just how valuable it is to a university to have a really great football coach. Because the thing that I would always argue is that is your chief marketing officer. No man is more important on your campus than the university's football coach, especially, especially if you are a university in the Big Ten or the SEC or the Big 12 or the ACC, any conference that we give a damn about. There is no bigger uh, man on your campus, not even the president, because people aren't watching the president do his job on national television. They're watching the head coach do his job on national television. And you can do, you can tie those wins and losses to your admissions. The University of Alabama 
has seen its ACT score continue to rise as Nick Saban won national championships. There are kids from all over the country that want to go to the University of Alabama now. Why? Because they win. Everybody wants to be associated with winning. And if buyout culture and buying out people so you can get the next guy, it's going to lead you to perhaps the next Kalen DeBoer, the next Nick Saban, the next, dare I say it, Ed Orgeron. That's what you got to do, man. And as long as people still have that money, I'm not going to begrudge them doing that. Now, I also am going to add in here, going back to what we started this conversation with, you're going to have to pay the labor. And I don't know that we're going to be able to do that at a rate that is going to be sustainable. And if you're fear for the sport, that would be the reason as to why. Do we have enough money to make sure that everybody eats? I think we do. But we're going to get tested here. And we're going to get tested here real quick, fast, and in a hurry, especially as at one point or another, somebody's going to decide to say, enough, I'm not paying this anymore. But when you're in the middle of a 25-year bull market where all you've seen is wages go up and all you've seen is people continue to come up with the money to pay these buyouts and you haven't even seen anybody default on the payments, yeah, all right, there is no end in sight. I understand that. And now with the expansion of the college football playoff, who knows what that is going to mean to the bottom line of these universities, let alone to the sport. So I think the point to raise there is if you think that your head coach is underpaid, it probably is true. If you think that your head coach is overpaid, it probably is true. And there is no head coach in the entire world that somebody won't pay to fire. Wild out here in these streets. All right. That is going to do it for today's episode of the number one college football show. Our number one college football show leads of screening are Jack Coakley and Torin Westfall. They make us better in the film room. Production assistant Kiara Santana and Jim Cunningham put the special in our special teams. Kiara Santana in the seat today. Social producer Javion Duncan makes sure the recruits and the rivals see the cake we bake. Chris Cheshire is sending in the signal. Senior producer Catherine Cordaggi sees the entire field from the booth. Lead producer Tyler Wojak calls the plays from the sideline. And the play snaps on my clap. We'll be back live next Tuesday. Till then, stay low. Keep those feet driving. Deus.